0: Everybody. The text for today is Luke 4: 14 through 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the lectionary has this one as a two-parter, essentially on the rollout of Jesus' ministry. And uh, uh, for those of you who know the end of the story, it uh, doesn't exactly go like we might first anticipate it, uh, having under- uh, th- followed this breakdown for the lectionary, but we'll talk about that next week. For those of you who haven't been around, we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke, and we're making, uh, I think, a kind of concerted effort to do something that we don't do a lot in reading the Bible. Um, We're trying to read it, and wait for it, as truth and as a story. In other words, we're trying to think about the power of Scripture, uh, and and Scripture as a narrative, not because we want to say it's simply a set of narrative techniques, uh, but because we... uh, think that God is constructing the story in a way that tells us something about the person, the character, and the mission of Jesus. And we're kind of in this weird cultural moment where it's tough uh, when you think about the options for reading scripture thoughtfully, the basic options that are often presented to us are like, read it like a history book or read it like a mythic narrative, and let's be honest, neither one of those really gets at what we think about the Bible. Uh, if we think about it as simply a mythic narrative, we miss that you know, there, there's real concrete truth contained in it, that this is God's means of communicating to the world, and it's configured in a way that is optimized for human beings to engage and understand and internalize the story. But it's not exactly like a history book either, because God has told the story in a specific way that's meant to draw us in, to engage us, to uh, to lend ourselves to making that story our own story, because uh, believe it or not, it turns out that God is uh, quite a storyteller and that God designed us to be creatures who make our way in through the world and make sense out of the world in story. And so to see Scripture not as a story and therefore not true, but as truth that is configured with a specific kind of shape to it ends up pretty, being pretty useful in helping us understand exactly what it is God's trying to tell us. So, I don't know, like, the uh, last couple of weeks have been a good example that what we'd call, in fancy uh, theological or literary terminology, recapitulation. Which, uh, you know, interesting term, I guess. Uh, in more direct terms, we've been calling it a divine redo. So we've been reading the Gospel of Luke as chock full of these examples that are essentially divine redos of Israel. That Jesus is... Redoing all the uh, challenges that Israel, the first Israel, had failed and in, in doing so, he becomes the new, new Israel. And one of the great things about Jesus becoming the new, new Israel is he's going to kind of blow the doors off the idea of the old Israel by saying everyone's included this time, and that that membership in the kingdom of God is extended to the whole world. So, like, you know, for those of you who've been here, we like compared the crossing of the Red Sea uh, and of the uh, of the Jordan by Joshua. To uh, um, uh, the, you know, the Exodus, uh, we compared the temptation to um, Israel wandering around in the desert, and the basic stick has been that it doesn't make a lot of sense to think about Jesus being tested or Jesus being tempted or Jesus uh, uh, having to undergo any of those challenges if the goal is to say that Jesus uh, could not pass them. But it makes a ton of sense to say Jesus recapitulates or redoes. Israel and that's what's really at stake there We're not really worried that Jesus needs to be baptized because he's the cleaning agent He's the one who is the principle through which we are made uh, made righteous and it's not like Jesus is going to get the test uh, From the devil wrong if we really believe that we might be a little uncertain about the direction of our faith Every once in a while Jesus might fail a random test with the devil But what we do believe is that the gospel is a story Uh, a true story that uh, in which Jesus is redoing uh, Israel in which Jesus is redoing um, all the things that God's original people were supposed to be able to rise to the occasion or rise to the task. And this time, Israel is uh, being redone in the person of Jesus Christ for the sake of inviting the entire world into it. You know, and like, if you think about it, that's a pretty radical idea in that the kind of heart of the old Israel was that there was a sacred and select people who were consecrated to the heart of god for whom god had a special charge and a special demand and here jesus is saying yes that idea of specialness is true yes that idea of me selecting loving and looking at the world is true but uh uh, the the only the only problem with that version of the story is that it narrows it to us a handful of people instead of the entire world and that what is displayed in the person of jesus christ is that god's love God's uh, uh, wish for a connection, God's desire that uh, we be in relationship is not just extended to that one small group, but is extended to every person in, in, in Jesus Christ. So, uh, divine uh, redo, recapitulation, call it what you will, but basically you've been trying to... Uh, compare Jesus to the people of Israel to demonstrate uh, what Jesus is, uh, is is doing over a second time and doing right. And one of the things that at least has struck me about Jesus redoing uh, this Israel over again is that we have all these beautiful examples of where we have uh, uh, something that Jesus has to undergo or encounter, and uh, it has a, a logical kind of thing that always comes with it that uh, in the redo doesn't really uh, make sense or in here. So, for example, in baptism, we have a call to redemption. Metanoia was the big theme behind there. And in Jesus's baptism, we have the consequent, or the, we have the the, the fact of redemption, but there 's not recrimination there there 's not all the stuff that 's normally associated with undergoing the water and undergoing death, of course metaphorically we 're supposed to die to ourselves, but the miracle of what Jesus offers us in baptized or in baptism is that he offers us redemption without the possibility of of recrimination and in the same way uh, Jesus undergoes a test, but he undergoes a test in the desert with Satan that he cannot fail, so we have a you know redemption without recrimination we have a uh, testing without the possibility of failure. And today in the uh, divine redo of Israel, we have what is perhaps I think the most beautiful and important of those, which is today we have Jubilee without judgment. So redemption without recrimination, testing without the threat of failure. And today we have Jubilee uh, without vengeance. And what do I mean? To see exactly what's going on here in this kind of redo of Israel uh, we have to understand why this is one of Jesus's most powerful. I don't. I don't know else to put it. Jesus drops the mic here, and uh, his drop of the mic here is pretty incredible. So, as you recall from last time, uh, uh, moves from baptism uh, to uh, temptation, and at the end of Luke four, in the temptation, we know that Jesus is kind of hanging around in the desert until what the scripture says is the opportune time to act. And for those of you, who are resurrection church time nerds, the time word there is Cairo. So Jesus is hanging out in the desert and he's waiting till exactly the right moment when he can move in order to maximize the effect of what he's doing. And then verse 14, Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. So I don't know, things are starting to move fast. Uh, The word is starting to spread about Jesus and we don't know If it was the miraculous dove-descending, heaven's opening baptism, or maybe, uh, you know, there's, uh, I don't know, maybe kids had trading cards those days of the various messiahs that would have wandered around the backwoods of of Galilee, but either way, you know, there was kind of buzz about Jesus and besting the devil in the desert and all those things. He had a little bit of stir, and so uh, Jesus is going from synagogue to synagogue, and Scripture tells us he is having pretty good success. Uh, Verse 15, he began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. And of course, if you know the end of this particular story, that uh, gets a little funny next week. But, you know, the, the real moment where Jesus begins his home, his ministry starts out in his hometown. So verse 16, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Now, if we're thinking about this in terms of the big movements in the story, The fact that he's back in his hometown is pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, this is a story of of people that go out from where they were born that face a struggle or uh, uh, face testing and then come back to where they were and create a, a new Israel or they do something new and after the people of, the, of Israel the first time around uh, undergo the exodus and the exile, they cross back into their Jordan, into their ancestral and spiritual homeland. So Jesus is redoing Israel. He's uh, come back across the metaphorical Jordan and here he is in his hometown after his test in the desert and he's about to shake things up a little bit. And uh, you all know uh, about Nazareth. It was an agricultural village. It was on a major trade route between uh, uh, close to the Galilean capital. It was uh, being rebuilt by the time that Jesus was there because the Romans would have kind of run roughshod over that. And to understand what Jesus is saying today, you've got to think about Nazareth in that condition. If you, uh, if you all recall from a long sermon on the cultural politics of fishing and salt, okay, one of my, one of my greatest detail sermons. Uh, the fishing industry was, like, in really rough shape as the result of the Roman occupation. And, like, the Romans taxed the business out of boats. They taxed the business out of salt, which was the thing that you needed to make the fishing industry work. Uh, And the Romans kind of, like, were in every bit of that whole kind of economic, what we would say today, ecosystem, (laughs) or that... that, uh, I don't know, that that industry, whatever you want to, whatever economic term you'd like to use for it, the Romans were all up in every part of it, regulating it and taxing it. As you recall from talking about uh, that uh, earlier, the fishing space was also dominated by Herod, who uh, was also taxing everything. And so I don't know, if you think about it, if you were like a poor... Uh, Galilean fishing family and the whole industry of the town was based on it, you were worried because uh, you barely got to make any money as it was. Fishing was a really tough, backbreaking, smelly, time consuming way of making your way. And even under the best conditions, you wouldn't make that much money. But now kind of Rome was stealing your money and Herod was stealing your money and taxing it to death. And I don't know, like if you looked around it maybe this doesn't sound entirely unfamiliar to you. If you were a working fisherman that looked at the community around you and you saw everybody struggling to get by, and uh, you saw that your community was in worse and worse shape, and you saw that things were starting to fall apart, those folks in that synagogue, I imagine, were pretty resentful about Rome. They were pretty mad about what the Romans were doing. They were uh, pretty mad about what had come uh, of their town and I don't know, they wanted to, I'm sure, kind of restore uh, Galilee to its, uh, its, its previous glory. So Jesus shows up at synagogue and people have been talking about him. And I imagine there's kind of a stir as he steps back in and maybe he's doing a guest reading. And so he pops up and uh, they give him some uh, scrolls from the prophet Isaiah. And you imagine Jesus kind of rolling it out on a table and looking at it. And there's this like, there's a big debate about whether or not there was a lectionary for them at the time. So some folks say there would have been a standard set of readings that Jesus was reading from. Some folks say that it hadn't quite happened yet. We don't really know. And since God controls the entirety of reality, including the fact that there's a lecture or not, I guess, lectionary or not, I guess it doesn't really matter. But at any rate, Jesus has these, uh, these things with it he wants to read. So he jumps around the, uh, the scroll little book a little bit, and, and here's what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, you know, he knows his hometown crowd. And we know these like little fragments from Isaiah were things that folks would have used all the time. And, you know, we know that devout Jewish folk, especially they had a lot of connection there with the Qumran community. And we know that from John. Uh, they would have talked about these verses all the time. It would have been like i don 't know uh, it 'd be like uh, uh, hearing a part of our liturgy and and and, and 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 knowing that that was something that was a significant part of the community 's spiritual reflection and there was a ton of sermons at the time you'd imagine, and we know from some look into history that you know people were in this kind of economically wrecked town that was under Roman occupation, and uh, you know unsurprisingly, people were talking all the time about a Messiah coming and setting uh, setting them free and right off the bat, uh, Jesus you know reads something that the uh, audience would have uh, you know expected and Uh, would have been interesting for them. And there's all these themes in it that are uh, really powerful. It's about a singular person, a messianic servant who has a message for all of Israel. It's about someone who has good news for everybody. It has all the stuff that would have been great for your typical Israeli nationalist sermon. But then there's also the stuff about the Jubilee, which is like, I don't know, essentially that would be like saying to a contemporary conservative crowd, make America great again. To talk about the Jubilee would have been like hitting them right in the, in the bell that you know would ping their salivary glands or whatever example uh, you'd like to use of people being directly responsive to it because Jubilee was a significant part of how folks thought about uh, restoring the glory of Israel. And if you remember the, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the concept around it, every 50 years— Things would like reset in the Jewish economy, and two particularly big things would happen. The first was, if you were an indentured servant, and you know you'd like uh, basically sold yourself off to pay off a debt or to, to support your family, every fifty years you would have been released from that obligation, so you were a, a free person again. And then every fifty years, basically the the title to the land would reset. So. You know, if if God had given your family land that had been in your family for a long time and the economy was kind of, you know, rough and it was hard for you to sustain your household income, there would have been a ton of people around Galilee had basically deeded their land to the Romans. And hypothetically, if there would have been a Jubilee, not only would they have been set free from their obligations to Rome, but they would have gotten their land back. So it was a big kind of political deal to talk about Jubilee. And that had to sound pretty darn good to those folks. I mean, here they were, they were living in this land that was totally controlled by Rome, and their lives were like living, uh, buying from the company store, and like every week they would have felt a little more of their dignity, and a little more of their autonomy, and a little more of their freedom slip away. And there hadn't been a Jubilee in centuries, and they had to be thirsting for it, but it wasn't exactly a Roman custom. But here's the important thing. It's not just that Jesus talks about Jubilee, it's what Jesus doesn't say. It's what Jesus doesn't say. So, for example, I was thinking in the car with Annabeth and Calla, who provided some of these examples, gave help uh, to, Beth, Beth helped too. But, you know, Annabeth had the best one, and Calla had the other really good one. Uh, so if I say to you, Mary had a little lamb, its face. Or if I say, I want to make you a peanut butter and sandwich. Or if I want to say that I believe in, in uh, pledging allegiance to the flag uh, with liberty and justice. In each of those three circumstances, the phrase feels totally incomplete because I don't say the lamb's face was white as snow, that there was jelly on that peanut butter and sandwich, or that uh, liberty and justice, the target of it is for all. In other words, there is a sense that you automatically expect something that finishes the saying, and not finishing the saying would have felt incomplete to you. Uh, To to omit those things would have been uh, highly... uh, a targeted and an intentional choice. Well, when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he's missing something. He's missing something that is white as snow, peanut butter and jelly, or liberty and justice for all. The whole formula, which these folks would have known by heart is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. And for the folks who lived in that area, like I was saying a bit ago, they would have really been waiting on Jesus to get to the end of that thing in Isaiah and to talk about God's vengeance on the Gentile heathens who had oppressed and repressed them for so long within every inch of their social and political and economic lives. But Jesus omits the remainder of the prophecy. And in fact, were he to continue reading, the prophecy is about Israel feasting on the riches of the Gentiles and the foreigners working in their fields, it's no small thing that Jesus has repeated this popular formula for what for Rome and for Herod getting their comeuppance. And he gets to the idea of jubilee, which was about a principle of freedom, but then he totally omits to follow through on the principle of divine vengeance. He has the good news of divine healing but and divine deliverance, but he doesn't talk about the comeuppance that Rome deserves. He is offering a possibility which had not been thought before of jubilee without the requisite vengeance against the world. And to me, it is one of the most beautifully revolutionary things about Jesus's kingdom. That we are taught that if we want justice, that we are taught if we want to fix some wrong, That we are taught, if we want to make things right, that someone needs to take the blame for the disorder in the world. And so we are taught, frankly, that if we want to bring about a world which is just and better, that someone has to bear the burden, the blame. Someone has to be the subject of coercion and or violence. But Jesus starts and does not complete the formula. Because in the economy of the new kingdom, there is something about the impulse that Jubilee requires, requires vengeance that just doesn't work. If you divide the world into the oppressed, and righteous to the oppressors and the oppressing. If you are a person who says in order for there to ju- be jubilee there has to be vengeance, you have to set up the world in this very very clean and very very elegantly simple and emotionally powerful way that says on one side is the side of people who are righteous, who are potentially victims and on the other side are the side of people who are aggressors who are coercive, who are immoral and well, the way uh, I like the way Radiohead puts it. This is what you get when you mess with us, right? The the logic of the world as set up in this sense of Jubilee requiring vengeance is about the idea that some people need to get their comeuppance in order for justice to come about. That that idea, this is what you get when you mess with us, the us in that phrase requires a them. It requires us to say That those who are objects of repression need to shift the moral locus from themselves to the agents of repression. But to do so, you have to believe that the universe is neatly divided between the bad and the good, the evil and the innocent, the victim and the victor. Someone has to take the blame. But the new kingdom, the new moral economy that Jesus announces says this, all of us deserve the blame. All of us are on the side of coercion, of violence, of of moral bankruptcy. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And there is only one who can and will take the blame in order to set us free. And in that holy logic, there is no us and them. There is only humanity and God. And it blows the roof off of most of our moral calculations. Jesus rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant. I imagine him doing it so slyly. And sitting down, and the eyes of the synagogue are fixed upon him, and he says to everyone, Today this writing has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's the mic drop, man. Imagine like like Ryan Matthews or Nikki or someone coming back from Thanksgiving break at MIT or whatever it is that they go to school, and they do a guest reading and they say, Hey, you know, we've been talking about the second coming for a long time around here, resurrection, and guess what? I'm it. Can you imagine what the people in the community would have thought? Can you imagine how amazing and incalculable it would have been to them? Jesus is reading the scripture and is simultaneously fulfilling it. He is claiming that he is what that scripture is talking about. He is describing an actually his existing state of affairs, and simultaneously he is making it happen in his reading of it. That's incredible. There's a whole school of philosophy called speech act theory that's about distinguishing between the different kinds of words that we use and the different kinds of things that they do. And it's really, I mean, it's interesting. They, you know, there's a difference between me saying, uh, if I'm an umpire and I say a ball comes across the plate, I might say, oh, you're out. And in one way, oh, you're out is a description objectively of where the ball goes. But in another way, oh, you're out doesn't happen unless the umpire says it. Or if I say, in the context of doing a wedding, I now declare you man and wife, On one hand, I'm saying you are man and wife as the result of this legal ceremony. But on the other hand, I'm saying it is by my proclamation that you become man and wife. And language is so interesting in the fact that it both describes things, it creates reality, and it has certain kinds of effects. And the beautiful thing that Jesus is doing here is he is saying this in this writing the scripture has, uh, in in, in me speaking, this scripture has been fulfilled, that he is saying that that describes the state of affairs within which we understand him to be the Messiah. He's saying he is causing that to come about by reading those things, and he is making the claim to be anointed by God. He's saying that all of that is happening at the same time, and the Greek is beautiful here. It's in the perfect tense, which is like saying, I don't know. It has been fulfilled is how we'd best translate in English, but it's not like Jesus didn't say today in this writing, this scripture is fulfilled because it's not just a one shot deal. It's not saying, well, this is fulfilled and now it's done. And he isn't saying today in my speaking, this writing is being fulfilled because he wants to say that it's simultaneously complete. What he's saying that's so beautiful and so powerful here is this. The perfect tense implies that something is done and that it's the beginning of a fundamentally new reality. Jesus is starting his ministry by saying, I have achieved the thing Isaiah promised. I am doing the thing that Isaiah promised. And I have brought about the world where the thing that Isaiah has promised is present for all of us. And I think the much better translation that is... (laughs) Powerful to me is Jesus essentially says, if you read the Greek, today, this has been fulfilled as soon as my words hit your ears. As soon as those words hit his ears, Jesus has announced that there is a new kingdom, one that entails everything about Jubilee, that entails that people are set free, that there is a new principle of sovereignty that what isaiah has promised the anointing was coming for everyone had come into existence and jesus has the power as a storyteller and the ability to and the wherewithal to say at one time i am both performing and describing and making this happen there is a new reality a new order a new kingdom a new principle that says that love is the governing law that We don't need violence or vengeance anymore to imagine a condition of Jubilee, to imagine a condition where we are set free and the old Israel and even its old enemies have all together become the new Israel simply by hearing and recognizing my voice. Today, the scripture is fulfilled and you're hearing it. And this new kingdom, the principle of change, is not violence or coercion or making uh, justice happen by, by force. The new principle of the new kingdom is love. And in saying it, Jesus has declared a new reality in which the powers of the governing order are revealed without a fight to be fundamentally illegitimate. And he is claiming that he is also doing it simply by saying it, declaring that his proclamation His word, his word spoken by the one who is the word from the very foundation of the universe has united him with his people and his people with him in a way that creates a perfect union and love without separation or distanciation or the counterfeit sovereignty of the existing order and vengeance. Vengeance is gone and instead there is simply jubilee because vengeance is a fragment and a figment of the old orders of sickness and sin and death, and Jesus is setting us free for all those things. He is offering us redemption without recrimination. He is offering us the possibility of passing a test without even uh, invoking the probability of failing, and today he offers us jubilee without vengeance or any limitation that requires anything other than all of us to recognize that Jesus has created a new order, that by his speaking, it has come into being, and that the world will catch up. Well, oh, for this week. We'll talk about it next week. All right, amen. Uh, questions, comments, feedback, thoughts?